0: Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined today by Eric Schwartzel. Now, we've had Eric uh, on the show before to talk about his book, Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. It's kind of about Hollywood making inroads into China and where that effort has succeeded and faltered. Uh, And I I got him back on the show today because he had a really interesting piece in The Wall Street Journal um, about, uh, frankly, how terrible Hollywood is doing in china at the moment uh declines across the board uh softness everywhere uh eric thanks for being back on the show hey thank you always a pleasure so all right so let's talk uh chinese box office what is go- what are hollywood studios looking at when they look at the uh the the tail of the box office tape in china right now there's not much to look at um i i think
1: What's happening now is actually the culmination of many, many years of, of movie going trends in China. I think you and I are very accustomed to a narrative where China was a place of almost like limitless revenue possibilities. They have 1.4 billion people. Um, for the past 20 years or so, they've loved going to Hollywood films. Um, and, and the movies that do well here and some that don't tend to do well there as well. So, so Marvel has raked in. Billions of dollars of t- in ticket sales. Avatar and its sequel have been huge there. Um, and that's been the narrative for a long time. But but coming out of COVID, we saw that there's really been a cleaving of, of tastes when it comes to the Chinese box office, where Chinese moviegoers more than ever are preferring to see Chinese films when they go to the theater. And not just, you know, turning away from Hollywood films, but... Outright rejecting them, and so we've had one example after another. Whether it's the new Indiana Jones movie, or Elemental, or the Little Mermaid—I guess to pick on Disney here for a second—all three of the, those movies have done just dismally. And 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 you know, several years ago, a disappointing box office in China might be you know, oh, it only made you know forty million dollars or so. A movie like Indiana Jones, forty or sixty million dollars. The new Indiana Jones has made four million dollars in china um and so that means not even the expats are going (laughs) um and and i think what it speaks to is is a couple things we can get into one of which is that over the past 20 years chinese filmmakers have really looked to hollywood for the model and the template of what kind of movies to make and as their output has gotten better and more sophisticated It shouldn't come as much of a surprise that Chinese audiences are preferring to see their own movie stars in their own stories rather than just continuing to blindly accept Western imports.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point here. So, uh, you know, I uh, uh, another uh, guy I've had on the show before, uh, Chris Fenton. He wrote a book called Feeding the Dragon. He is a he was a production exec for a while uh, in Hollywood and has some experience bringing stuff to China. And what what he is has been saying to me for the last two years is. They, you know, they were they taught themselves to fish, and now they're fishing. Um, They have they've imported the 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 talent and the know how. They've taught their their folks how to do it. Now they're making their own stories, and that's what their people want.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was one thing that I was struck by when I worked on my book was just how far back that effort went. And 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 we're talking now. You know, Hollywood movies have really only in earnest been flowing into China since 1994. So this is a relatively new market by. By Hollywood standards, right, and and really as early back as the early as the early 2000s, I found evidence of Chinese officials um, trying to trying to have a kind of technology transfer when it comes to the skills, the storytelling approaches, um, and and just the technical know how that goes into to making movies. And in some cases, they just outright hired Western talent to go over and teach them. And and I think also there was just a kind of natural Osmosis that happened, where as exposure to Western entertainment deepened, many filmmakers in China tried to, you know, do what they could to to recreate that kind of that kind of story to- storytelling approach. Um, and 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 we've seen this in a, in a really fascinating parallel in a lot of other industries, right? Whether it's you know manufacturing or um, in uh, airplane engines, like there's there's been a kind of transfer of know-how and then a kind of are running with the ball in in the Chinese U.S. dynamic in in the past. It just so happens that it might take a little bit longer with something so like storytelling, right? Like how do you how do you transfer the elements of storytelling? It's a little more complicated and esoteric than transferring the blueprints for airplane engine modeling. Mm-hmm. um But they're definitely here, and I think I think the other thing that had to happen were was that Chinese audiences had to be kind of trained to go back to the mm-hmm. movies and see Chinese films because. A lot of the Chinese folks that I would talk to would say things, you know, like that, that for a long time, if they, if they were born in the, in the 70s or 80s, the movie theater was really just another kind of venue for propaganda. And it was a place you often went because the state-owned enterprise where you worked was that you said on Friday afternoon, we all have to go see this movie about the glories of the Chinese army or celebrate the anniversary of the PLA or something. And it was, it was really just sort of a place for your vegetables, not necessarily for just kind of sheer entertainment. And, and in the past 20 years or so, the Chinese uh, regime and, and also its creative class have tried to introduce more entertaining elements in, into the film. So, so when you go to a Chinese multiplex now, frankly, it looks more diverse in lineup than an American multiplex. It, it's very, you know, they're, they're, they actually have never stopped putting romantic comedies in theaters or thrillers or um, science fiction. I mean, it, it, whenever you look at the, the lineup of the Chi- what's, what's working at the Chinese box office right now, it really looks like, a, like the Hollywood of the 1980s that is now romanticized by so many, right? Where it's every kind of movie is being put out, often original stories, and they're all, you know, leading to audiences turning up in real numbers.
0: It, that's really that's a really interesting point. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought about it precisely this way, the the way it, it kind of mirrors what was going on in the United States in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, I wonder uh, how much of this. So, uh, you know, the the economics of Hollywood have changed uh, drastically since then. Right. To uh, focus on uh, home runs. You got to we got to make the billion dollar tentpole. That's what we got to make over and over again. Um, we're going to make five of those instead of, you know, 30 uh, of all sorts of movies that, that cost less. I mean, how much of this is just China, uh, the, the Chinese market being so inwardly focused that they can't really make that outside of, you know, uh, the, the very occasional um, uh, Wolf Warrior or whatever. They're, they're not making billion dollar movies. They're making smaller, you know, more focused internally movies. Well, I would push back on that. I mean, they they aren't
1: making many billion dollar movies, but the, the a hit in China is still making more money than just about any movie released in any other market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're you're right. Like, I think it, there hasn't been a Chinese movie that's that's got done one point five billion dollars, and and you know, only five hundred million of that is coming from its home market. They they still have this this problem where their movies don't travel and and something like 98 or 99% of a blockbuster gross in China tends to be coming from China. It's not like uh, audiences mm-hmm. in France or Nigeria are are going to check it out. Um but it is such a huge market that it's still a good business to be in. Um and and what's interesting is it, to the point about sort of the genre diversification, you know, some of the the really successful Chinese films of the past several years have been what what I've called popcorn propaganda, which are movies that are often, if not produced by the state, then endorsed by the state, um, often very nationalistic in tone, often very, you know, uh, you know, going back to that well of, of what kind of Chinese victories can we be looking at again and again and again. But rather than kind of having an eat your vegetables ideological approach, they are, you know, kind of like, a, there's like a bit of a Rambo stylization to them. Um, and, and it works on multiple levels because people actually want to go see it and the government likes the messaging that, that it's conveying. Um, and, and then in, in other cases we have just going on strictly entertainment, um, insofar as every, every movie in China, you know, is approved by the censors before it's released. So, so every Mm -hmm. movie in China is a reflection in some way of, of state priorities. Um, but. There was a, a Chinese thriller um, that has made four hundred million dollars in China so far this year. I mean, um, horror movies do well in the U.S., but but cracking four hundred million dollars as a horror film or a thriller is is pretty hard to do. I think it just speaks yep. to the size of the market, but also that that it doesn't seem like the kind of the consumer behavior of thinking that is not a theatrical type of release that I'm only going to reserve my theatrical movie going to the biggest most spectacular releases isn't quite catching on in China to the degree that it has
0: here in the U.S. How much of this is a function of consumer behavior? I mean, I don't I don't know the answer to this. Always a mistake to answer, ask a question you don't know the answer to. But uh, how much of this is a function of China having a less mature streaming market, right? So there's no Netflix in China. There's no Prime Video. I know they have their own uh, like Tencent has a streaming mm-hmm. service, but but the but, you know, the the market there is is I think I get the sense anyway, is uh, uh slightly less robust than uh than certainly the theatrical market at this point.
1: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how like their streaming hours compare to, to the US. I mean, I've always you're right that they don't have Netflix. I mean, the, the the list of countries that Netflix is not operating in right now is is very telling. It's like there's maybe less than 10 fewer than 10 and it's like North Korea Syria and China like i mean it's yeah. it's it's this glaring hole in their global domination and it's because the chinese regime has really been quite protectionist about its streaming services and there are 3 services that kind of function as their their primary services and and they're collectively referred to as the bats because it's Baidu Alibaba and Tencent who run the three main services there. And, and look, I think they certainly are streaming quite a lot there. Um, I, I think that one thing that that is certainly happening is that theatrical movie going, I would say especially compared to the US is still a relatively new phenomenon in large parts of China. Um, and if you look at the, the screen per person uh, ratio, China is still underscreened relative mm-hmm. to the US. So that means there are still parts of the country where heading to the movies is is not a particularly easy thing to do. Um and so I think there might be there might be sort of a novelty element there. Um I also think we're just we we just have to also keep in mind the simple math that they have, you know, more than 3x the population that that the US does, so a movie when it takes off there has a has a higher ceiling. Um than than it does here in in the US now I think the other the other thing to keep in mind is because of the relationship between uh, commercial enterprises and the state in China you know there's always been a, a real government support for movie going for several reasons one is what we referenced, which is you know it's it's a it's a great venue for messaging um, uh, overt or covertly um, and then the other is that the model of the of the Chinese multiplex is very is also very like 1980s America like a lot of Chinese movie theaters and complexes are in malls and sort of these anchor tenants of broader real estate uh developments and so there's a real vested interest by the government to make sure that those ventures continue to see that foot traffic and to continue to see that spending and so the government will do what it can to support that business and sort of keep that entire kind of enterprise afloat in a way that, you know, certainly, you know, the US, the government stepped in to help uh, businesses during COVID to some degree. But like we're seeing now after um, after theaters have reopened, in some cases, the Chinese government is offering theaters specifically a kind of subsidy and, and, and a form of support to make sure that that, that kind of movie going habit gets going again
0: hmm. I mean, there is a real interesting disjunction. I mean, I'm looking at uh, your your uh, story. There's a there's a chart here that just tracks box office uh, American uh, box office from American movies by year. Um, and, you know, the high point is 2019 and then 2020 obviously dip for for fairly obvious reasons. 2020 the COVID year, of course. But then 2021, 2022, 2023, it doesn't quite come back the same way. Um, and again, you know, you see you see a similar kind of pattern in the United States, except in the United States. It's a pretty sta- steady progression back upwards. It, what was there a did 2020s uh, covid lockdown, cessation, et cetera, essentially break the habit of going to see American movies? What is it? Was it a, a function of a, a lack of product or um, inability to go to the theaters. I'm just curious if you have a, a sense of what the what the cause and effect here.
1: Yeah, I think in, is. in the same way that a lot of Americans fell out of the habit of going to see certain kinds of movies in theaters or movies at all in theaters, I think that that was one habit that was broken uh, during COVID, which was going to see American films specifically. And part of that was because you're right, during COVID, very few were coming out. But then after after 2020, in 2021 and 2022, the Chinese government, to the extreme frustration of Hollywood executives, did not let in nearly as many American films as it typically does. And, and in fact, it's actually, it seems like it was in violation of the treaty that kind of approved this distribution in, in, to begin with. There there is an agreement that the Chinese government is supposed to let in 34, at least 34 foreign films a year. Now that normally means like 33 of them are American, right? 32 mm-hmm. or 33 are American. And and there was a time in 21 and in, in in part in 22 where a fraction of that number was being let in. And and this is where I think doing business with China for any sector can can prove to be so frustrating which is that there was nothing the studios could do i mean they could complain um they could you know raise it as an issue but but there really wasn't much they could do in in, pat- in part because they didn't want to make it worse right you don't want to alienate um the ministry of propaganda and 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 further jeopardize approvals of your films going forward and and so on so they just had to sort of sit back and cross their fingers and hope that china would would start letting their movies in again. Um, it seems as though part of the reason for that kind of temporary, partial blackout was that it, it gave um, it gave Chinese films a clean runway, right? And there was v- there was a lot less competition. Uh, it's similar to the Netflix dynamic, right? Like keep out the foreign product so that our our own domestic product and our domestic companies have uh, you know free reign and And I think that contributed to the to the habit issue i mean for, for instance like as a case study you can look at um Marvel now Marvel um really was hit really hard by this blackout in fact, I think it it came to like something like six movies in the Marvel mm-hmm. Studios series, which is as you know like a very important kind of chronology were kept mm-hmm. out of China starting with Black Widow back in the summer of 2020 and yep. so if you're if you've I mean it's like anything right like you miss i mean back whenever we watch shows week to week if you missed a month like did you did you really pick it back up or or and so there's going to be kind of a natural sort of falling off of, of of some fans in that respect um and then i think i i think that um you know it's just also interesting to see how some of hollywood's tried and true strategies today just went into all these problems in china for instance you know, I think Indiana Jones, which was a failure everywhere, let's be fair, um, you know, relies very heavily, as a lot of these new reboots do, on nostalgia. Well, Chinese audiences aren't very nostalgic for a character they barely know. So there's going mm-hmm. to be some kind of, there's going to be a kind of lost in translation element there, too.
0: Well, and, and but beyond that, though, I mean, look at the Mission Impossible series, which you highlight uh, in your story, like the the new Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1. I get the whole thing in there. Um, uh, have we you know, ever, that, have we, I'm sorry, Have we ever, I, mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but if we ever had a title with more,
1: um, you know, kind of like grammatical, and grammatical, and grammatical, yeah, yeah. yeah no. I'm, I'm thinking about those poor, um, those poor people who have to put up the marquees, you know, I'm like, I mean, where do they find all the colons and dashes they need these days?
0: Yeah, I, I feel like that was a, a pretty regular thing in the uh, Star Wars episode blank, right? You know, uh, uh, series, but this is—I I do think three colons and m dashes is a is a is a new record for one for one movie. Um, uh, the so this movie, you know, comes out in China. It's doing what about a third? Yep, of the previous previous one, and you know that's not a movie that's relying on nostalgia necessarily, but it is a movie that's relying on star power, right? Like the Tom Cruise gets out there and he goes everywhere. He goes to every country and he's doing backflips on the red carpet. And people are real excited to see him uh, but is that is that sort of star power uh, American Western star power on the wane in China as well, in addition to you know people getting tired of you know Marvel stuff or whatever? Yeah,
1: I mean look, I mean insofar as you can kind of make proclamations about a country with 1.4 billion people I, I was talking to uh, a studio executive who was doing just that, <laughs> and he said that um it's his belief that as relations between the U.S. and China really frayed during those COVID years, that a lot of Chinese moviegoers really did ingest this kind of skepticism toward anything made in the USA. Um, and, and that especially, you know, in, in smaller cities or more rural areas, there's going to be a real reluctance to embrace American movies. Um, as they once did, because of those politics are just sort of a general kind of distaste for for the country. So I think that's part of it. I mean, like it's never any one thing, right? But I think it's that it's that kind of years long lag of having a steady flow of American product. I think I think you have to bring the politics into it. I think you have to bring the kinds of movies that America's making into it and and also then, and I'd say primarily the the sort of the new, an improved competition that Chinese movies are offering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh so let's uh let's think about what this actually means for uh Hollywood, right? So if you can't make 200, 300, 400 million dollars on a movie, uh, even with the the higher than usual cut that China keeps, um, from that from that picture, what does that do to Budgets in America, like what does what what are the studio execs uh, looking at when they're setting their you know profit and loss sheets? They're like, okay, we got to make X amount of money here, we got to make X amount of money here. I mean, if you zero out China everywhere, which it, my understanding is that several studios have just started doing that, uh, what does that do to what you can greenlight uh, in terms of making a movie? Yeah, that's my understanding as well, which is that in these
1: in these greenlight meetings where they project. Um, how much they might expect to make in the u s and Canada, how much they might expect to make in a foreign market, and then how much they might expect to make in China um that they've just put a zero in the china column and and I think part of that is just like that's just good office politics, right like if you if you If you tell your uh accountants that you're not expecting anything and then you you get an extra you know twenty five million out of it, like it's it's kind of found money um, but it does it does lower the ceiling of what you can spend on the movie ultimately. Um, And and I should say that the reason they're putting a zero in the China column is not just because Chinese moviegoers aren't showing up. It's because they just they just can't predict if they're going to get in anymore or if some if Mm -hmm. some, you know, is there going to be some is some trade wind going to blow and there's going to be some dispute and, and suddenly they're they're caught in the crosshairs. Right. Like so. So that's that's kind of I think it's the political instability and the the audience reaction that's leading to that kind of zeroing out that you that you mentioned. Um, so yeah, I think I think budgets overall are coming down because we just have seen that audiences everywhere, with just a few exceptions, aren't turning out as they as they once did. Um, I think that I don't think that it means that we're in a world where there's suddenly a long leash of free expression. I I, I mean I think one the other element of this is the the censorship that's that's required or the self censorship that's required to make sure that any movie that you want to get into China does get into China. So not making a movie that, you know, casts certain actors or broaches any any themes. I don't think that not planning on a Chinese box office gross means that studios aren't still thinking about that. And I'll explain why, mm-hmm. which is that every studio, all the the five major studios are all part of much larger corporate parents. And in the past, China has punished Companies anywhere it can for political messaging it doesn't agree with. So if Disney says, you know, well, let's say Fox, Fox would be more appropriate. So let's say Fox says, you know, we don't need to worry about China's box office anymore. Let's make a movie about Tiananmen Square. Let's make a big Oscar movie about Tiananmen Square. Um, well, that actually would ripple through the larger Walt Disney Company, and and pretty soon Bob Iger would have to be, you know answering for that messaging there the theme park that it runs there would be under under threat the toys it sells all the other movies it wants to release in theaters so I don't necessarily think that there is sometimes this narrative where well if we're kind of decoupling from the Chinese box office maybe that will convince studios not to worry as much about falling in line with the censors I don't buy that I think it's still going to be still going to be a, con, a major consideration
0: um, please. Yeah, let's I, let me jump in here uh, just very quickly and uh, could you could you what is the situation like with the theme parks in uh in in China because I know this is a you know Disney has Disney has a park NBC Universal's building um uh, uh a a theme park. Uh, what is or maybe has already opened? I I, I think sure. it has opened. Remember. Yeah,
1: I think it's open. Yeah. yeah.
0: So so they so you've got these you've got these corporations that aren't just looking at box office dollars. They're also looking at like what happens to this massive amount of money we have invested in building up actual structural locations that cannot be moved, um, you know, if things go south with China? Right.
1: And and so I think, you know, one thing, the the main thing to understand with the, like the theme park. So Shanghai Disneyland um, is the is the biggest example of this. It was a five point five billion dollar investment. But like so many Western, like all Western ventures in China, Disney is not allowed to be a majority owner of it. There are Chinese companies that own, I think, around 55% of it. And Disney has a 45% minority share. Um, obviously, though, huge reputational cost if anything happens there. I mean, the best example I I've, I can remember of just that shows just how beholden these companies have to be to, to the Chinese government it was, I think, in 2021. It was during China's zero COVID uh policy restrictions and and there was a there was a day where there was a positive covid test registered at Shanghai Disneyland and the response from the government was to lock everyone inside the park and not let them leave until they tested negative now that is not the disney way <laughs> that is not the disney no. experience right and i I'll, I'll never forget doing a story on it and and being told by someone at disney that to kind of let the time go by while everyone was standing in these long lines to get tested for covid they decided to put off the fireworks and 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 allow them to see sort of watch a fireworks show while they stood in line i thought what a surreal experience that that must have been but it shows you that like it's the it's called shanghai disneyland everyone thinks it's a disney theme park but it's in china so it's going to be run by china um so, so, but but it's but it's a huge, as you said, it's a huge kind of um, bargaining chip, right? I mean, there are so many things that um, Chinese authorities can do to uh, try to kind of, pre- you know, apply pressure on on something if they if they, as I said, they don't like the messaging. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what would happen if if China said, "Well, all right, Disney, you're out." We're we're tired of these uh, these these movies you're making, you know, you made seven years in Tibet 30 years ago. We're, we're done with you. Uh, and what the parks would actually look like. I mean, like, you know, uh, would they would they have to rebrand it? Would they just tear it down? I, I don't know. I it's 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 an interesting thing.
1: I don't know. It's always a, it's I mean, there's always a dance in China between like what whether they're going to prioritize the economics, the economic equation or the political equation. The political equation usually wins, but I—I I, I mean, not good. It wouldn't be good for Chinese business if if Shanghai Disneyland ceases to exist or ceases to exist as a Disney park, either, right? So, so there's always yeah. there's a bit of a um they've they've kind of got like mutually assured destruction or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh Okay, uh, let's see. What else is going on in the world of China and the box office?
1: Well, I think one thing that was was particularly interesting, and I, I worked with several colleagues who are based in Asia on this story, because I thought the what I really wanted this piece to include were, like, voices from Chinese moviegoers. Because, I mean, like, I was seeing these returns, these, like, these openings that are just, I mean gross as you might expect out of like the Philippines or mm-hmm. Korea. I mean like much much smaller markets coming out of coming out of China um which was at one point in history the number one box office in the world um and and I think one thing that was particularly interesting was the response to The Little Mermaid which um the, the live action remake of The Little Mermaid and and we talked to folks and and it was interesting that the you know the casting on that that movie um, and this kind of sort of colorblind casting and, and having um, a black actress play Ariel, the Little Mermaid, and so on—it um, had obviously inspired a lot of reaction everywhere, positive, mostly I think, but also it had become a bit of a cause celeb in, in conservative circles too. And um, and I think what was interesting was talking to when my colleagues talked to moviegoers in the U or in in China. They they received that casting as what they what they routinely refer to as political correctness, and they didn't they didn't want um, to see it in part because of that. And it was interesting because it was you know that is that is casting that's kind of like responding to a conversation happening here in the U.S., but mm-hmm. a conversation that understandably I think a lot of Chinese moviegoers might might not be privy to. And so to then see it received as this kind of um, like political messaging. I mean, like one of my colleagues was talking to a moviegoer who said, "You know, I don't go to the movies to be like sort of pol- like uh, you know taught ide- ideology. I go to be entertained." Which it's a, li- a bit, I would say, a bit, <laughs> yeah. a bit ironic, um, it, you know, yeah. given uh, the CCP's history of of the movie theater and how it's treated the movie theater. But um, but no, I think it's it, it is an example of how. We've we've seen like now as the as the movies reflect American culture and conversation more and more, like there being another kind of gap in in what appeals to to ch- moviegoers in China specifically.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just imagining somebody uh, being like, I'm not going to see this new Little Mermaid movie because it's too politically correct. I don't want to be indoctrinated. Instead, I'm going to go see the Battle at Lake Changjin. Uh, you know that that's that's what I'm looking. Uh, no, but it is interesting though. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I am always hesitant to, um, uh, I'm always hesitant to make box office predictions or projections based on, you know, outrage, controversy, et cetera. I think a lot of stuff that we talk about is unfortunately very, very online, very, sure. you know, kind of like, uh, the 50 loudest people on Twitter sound like a, m- a million people and that's not necessarily the case but it is it was interesting to read that part of the story because i it made me it made me wonder you know how much of that is how much of that is native to china an internal chinese discussion versus uh a a conversation they're picking up on here in the united states if at all i mean it feels like china is probably having no real crossover with like politics twitter in the united states you know i does that does that is, does that question make sense? Like, where where is it coming from? Is I guess the the, the big question. It's a great
1: question, and I mean, I, I I to be honest, I don't know. And I think, but one thing I was struck by was, um, you know, when I would when I would talk to my colleagues, they said the the phrase that a lot of people they were seeing yes online, but also talking to in person, um, it was political correctness, political correctness, political correctness, which which is interesting. I, I actually, th- I was thinking to myself, I wonder if the the charged topic of political correctness is just kind of a broader debate in China right now, and they're sort of slotting it into an internal conversation they're having too. Because it just was, yeah. it, I just was struck by the sort of how, um, how
0: commonly used a phrase it was. I mean, because that's, I mean, it could also just be, a translation question i guess True. right like i mean what does what does political correctness actually translate to in in china um in chinese i i don't know i mean I, again it's it's a it's it's a really interesting topic because again that phrase political correctness jumped out at me i was like oh that that sounds that sounds familiar <laughs> where you know what is what is what is going on there uh interesting very interesting all right I, as you know i always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything i should have asked if you think there's anything folks should know about uh, this story or anything else you might be working on It's a on? good
1: question. Let's... I wanted to, I mean I wanted to make sure we hit little mermaid because I do think that's interesting and I do think that there's been a lot of um kind of speculation about why it's not performing well and and very little like actual reporting. Um so that was that was one thing I wanted to hit, but um I'm trying to think here I'm trying to think if there's there's I mean, you know what's really interesting Sunny is like I was looking at like basically the summer calendar is over. Like there's not like There's nothing after really Barbie and Oppenheimer that I can think of off the top of my head. So I will say like, I don't, I don't see any films on the horizon that are going to buck this trend. What, what about the Meg, the
0: Meg 2? Yeah, you're right.
1: Sorry. Yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole part of my story too. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's, there, there is the Meg, which the Meg 2, the trench. um, The trench. Which is, which is kind of, um, you know, the exception that proves the rule um, because it is. Uh, it is the, now a very rare thing, and al- almost an artifact in Hollywood. It's a co-production between the U.S. and China, and it cast uh, the movie cast Wu Jing, who is one of China's biggest action stars, in a, in a role opposite Jason Statham. And so, there is a world where the Meg two, if I had to predict today, probably does better in China than it does in the U.S. And and I think it was it was probably greenlit on that assumption as well. Um, but as I said, that is, that is really, um, a bit of an artifact because those kinds of movies, um, are very rarely made anymore. Those kinds of China play movies. Um, and, and the Meg two is, um, I'm, I'm told at least, you know, if all, if all goes according to plan, uh, a franchise in the making that they're hoping will sort of still be that kind of Hollywood Chinese crossover. But, um, yeah. But I think a lot of the pure, the pure global plays that Hollywood has on the docket, the, the Marvel movies, um, the Pixar releases, the movies that traditionally went over to China and made a killing, like, I'd have to imagine that there are a lot of, there's a lot of sort of furious revising of projections inside these studio offices after the summer that they've had. And, and the other thing, the other thing I would add before we go is I think, You know, this was raised as a prospect in one conversation, and it's it's extreme, but it shows you the degree to which the narrative has turned in Hollywood, which is I was talking to one executive who said, when your grosses out of China are so bargain basement low, I mean, sub 10 million, that means that these studios are actually losing money by releasing movies in China. Um, after marketing expenses and the fact as you, as you alluded to earlier, like they only get 25% of the gross out of the market, they're losing money. Um, and so he raised the question of whether or not at some point studios decide it's not even worth submitting certain titles because it's, um, it's rather than at one point being
0: found money or, or something close to pure profit, it's actually a money losing venture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I this is the thing I keep wondering is how much longer uh it, the the studios can can, you know, focus on China or even treat it as an ancillary market um, if it's going to be such a such a disaster area for them. Right. Um, right. But anyway, uh Eric, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, again, uh title of your book uh is The Red Carp our Red Carpet, just Red Carpet. Uh Hollywood China and the Global Battle. For cultural supremacy, uh, definitely. I, I strongly recommend picking it up if you're interested in this topic. It's there's a ton of uh, information there. It is uh, it's well worth your time, and there's lots of really interesting little tidbits about how the the, the various entertainment companies kind of have uh, you know in, invested in China and 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 seen seen that pay off or not. Um, but Eric, thank you for being on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Sunny. Uh, My name is Sonny Bunch. I am the culture editor at The Bulwark, and we'll be back next week with another episode. We'll see you guys then.